I'm Steph Hansen, faculty at Iowa State University. And I'm Mary Janowski, faculty at the University of Nebraska. When we started our faculty positions, we quickly realized how important mentoring can be to the success of our graduate students and our programs. Using the principles of community, communication, and curiosity, we'll give you actionable tips to become a better graduate student mentor based on what we've learned during our mentoring journey. We've We've made the mistakes. So you don't have to, because mentoring matters. Hello, mentors, and welcome to the Mentoring Matters podcast. We have a really exciting episode for you today. We just finished interviewing the wonderful Dr. Jen Heemstra from Emory University. And Jen has done a lot of work and has a very large social media presence around graduate student mentoring in addition to her chemistry research. Mary, I think it was a really awesome conversation. Do you have any kind of highlights that you think we can set up for our listeners? Well, the theme that jumped out to me in our conversation today was about how as mentors, we need to have a growth mindset and be willing to try new things, be willing to adapt, be curious. And in allowing ourselves the opportunity to explore, not only can we become better mentors, but we can demonstrate uh, to our students that the growth mindset is a healthy thing and that we all need to continuously be learning. And so we can demonstrate that in learning about how we mentor best and trying out new activities. And sometimes, I mean, be honest, be willing to fail. And so I thought that was a pretty cool message that came through uh, the whole conversation in many different ways. Absolutely. All right. Well, we are really excited to have Dr. Hamster with us today. And with no further ado, we'll get started with the interview. So I guess our first question is, can you walk us through how you developed this passion for graduate student mentoring? That is a great question. I was thinking about this question a little bit when you posed it to me. And I think the somewhat trite but really genuine answer is that I had fantastic mentors and I saw the difference that that made in my career and in my life. That right from the beginning when I was an undergrad researcher, I was fortunate to join the lab of someone who was a phenomenal mentor And that helped me realize the importance of choosing great mentors. So I brought that with me into the decision I made about my PhD advisor and my postdoc advisor. So then when I was fortunate enough to start my independent career, which only happened because I had these phenomenal mentors who encouraged me and stood up for me when there were barriers in my way, I realized that I wanted to use my job and my career as a faculty member to pay that forward by trying to also be a great mentor to the members of my lab. What I didn't realize is that great mentoring takes more than great intentions. I started out thinking, if I know I want to be a great mentor, I want to have this healthy and positive lab culture, then it will happen. If I, if I know that and I say it, I will somehow speak it into truth. But of course, that couldn't be further from the truth because it takes a lot of intentionality and it actually takes a lot of professional skills, leadership skills and actual mentoring skills. And I realized that as faculty, I think this is a really common experience that so many of us bond over, that we end up in this job and very quickly realize that we were not really trained for a significant portion of what our job constitutes. But then I also realized that there are a lot of phenomenal resources out there, many of them in the organizational leadership world. Actually, I have a good, good friend who is not a scientist, not in academia, but is an expert in organizational leadership. And as I start talking to him about things I was trying to do with my group of, let's experiment with how we run our lab, how we think about mentoring and teamwork and all these things. He said, well, Jen, that's just that's just organizational leadership. And and the light bulb went off for me of, oh, yes, and I can go read these books and learn about that and adapt all of these things happening in the business world into our academic context. And just like we experiment in our research, we can experiment with 
mentoring approaches and with leadership and with how we organize our lab and how we work together as a team. And so everything since then has just been an ongoing experiment. And really my outward facing passion for mentoring is just a reflection expansion of the passion that I have for that within my own lab. So Jen, can I ask a follow-up about your good mentoring experiences? You, you mentioned that they were very encouraging and that they crashed through roadblocks for you. Were there other things that you, that you felt were really great part of what they did as mentors that, that aligned with helping you to get through and become what you are today? Ooh, that is interesting. I think some of it is that they did, I don't know to what extent they tailored their mentoring to what I needed or that I just got enough mentoring from grad students and postdocs to select myself into the types of experiences that I needed. So for example, I had actually a lot of undergraduate research experience because I spent this time not knowing what I wanted to do with my life. So I slowed down, said, well, I love research. I'm having a blast with that. I'm just going to do lots and lots and lots of that. So by the time I went to graduate school, I had all this experience as a really strong foundation. And what I knew I wanted was lots and lots of independence. I wanted an advisor who would just set me loose, give me advice when I needed it, but just let me kind of take the training wheels off and operate like my own little mini PI or whatever within that research lab. And so I chose someone who was known for doing that. But then I think what was probably important is that that faculty member, my faculty advisor, was really good at doing that, that he he was very open about this is what to expect in my lab. And I said, yes, that is exactly what I want. And then it was that there was truth in advertising. But then even within that, he was really great about still being there when I needed help or advice and knowing when to say, yeah, you go figure this out. I think this will be good for you to figure this out versus, yeah, let's meet and talk through this. Uh, I will never forget one day he came by my desk and I was sorting through this, all of these different complex models, trying to figure out how these molecules were binding and catalysis was happening and we were doing this competitive inhibition and it got way out of my desk with some of the math, but it was a lot of fun and I was figuring it all out and trying to hash through it and think through it. And he walked up and said, how's it going? I said, oh man, my head hurts thinking about all of this. And he said, good, because there's lots of things in science that make my head hurt. So this should make your head hurt and that's good. And that was perfect. He could have just stepped in and said, oh, this is right and that's wrong and don't do this and do this. But he didn't. He let me, he saw that I was on the right path and he let me figure it out. And then when I did figure it out, actually the funny part of this story too, now I realize like how I was kind of, I guess not played in this, but it played right into what he wanted. That it was a, uh, it happened to be a Saturday morning and um, it happened to be during our graduate student recruiting weekend. And I went to look for him because I figured out the model and I was like, oh, I had these two models. And then when I plug in all the numbers, one of them lands exactly right and the other one doesn't. So this is what's happening. And I was so excited. And because he let me struggle through it, I owned that this was the thing that I had done. And that's, oh, that's the best part about science and research. So I was so excited. I went running around the building, not literally running, but walking really quickly. And I found him in a conference room. I just saw him, so I went in. And then I realized he's meeting with someone. I said, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry to interrupt. But he said, no, 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 tell me what you have to say. And so I started telling him, I go to the board and I'm writing all this stuff. I said, I figured it out, I figured it out. And he goes, that's awesome, yes. And, and then he introduced me, he said, this is this person, they're a prospective grad student here and they're on the visit weekend. And then we had some niceties and then I left and I realized, oh, how great was that? I I just became maybe the best possible advertising for the graduate program. I've never actually told that story publicly. So if he hears this, maybe he'll remember that. Maybe he won't. And maybe he'll claim, oh, no, I just was so excited about the research. That's why I let you interrupt me. But I remember thinking, huh, I, I now I know why you let me come in and interrupt this discussion. <laughs> 
but I just think that's smart. I don't think that's like manipulative. I'm like, that's just good recruiting. Yeah. Well, he let you take ownership and then your excitement showed through, which, yeah, that would be a great recruiting tool for anyone. (laughs) That's amazing. Okay. So uh, in terms of one of the goals of our podcast, right, is, is really to help uh, our fellow mentors have actionable tips and frankly, for us to learn those as well. So we're really interested to get actionable tips from you. So if you were to think about one, the number one thing that you would like to tell fellow mentors uh, that would help their graduate students succeed, what would it be? Oh, I only get to, can I have two? If they're both actually okay, I see Stephanie <laughs> nodding. So I'm gonna I'm gonna do two because they're actually very different things depending on what is the greatest need in your group. I would say the number one thing is communicate. And there is no such thing as too much clarity or too much communication. And this is something that I've had to learn that I know what the, you know policies like my open door policy of come on in if I'm here and the door's open or vacation time, excuse me, or what's another one? What we expect for group meetings every week, what the format should be for our subgroup meetings, all of those things, flexibility and work hours. I know what I think about all of that, but if it's not written down and if it's not reinforced, and then if I am not also living by those policies, then it hasn't been communicated effectively. And often we, as leaders, you know, again, we never got trained for this. No one ever taught me about that. But I realized there's a really, there was a really big gap and there still is between what I think I'm communicating and what other people feel like they're receiving. And so the more and more and more clarity we can build, that is so helpful. The other thing, this is something that I just started doing on a whim, but has been really transformative for our lab and actually is what launched me being on Twitter and writing my blog and all of these things is realizing that there are all of these skills that we have developed over time as researchers that are separate from the research content itself, but are so unbelievably important for the success of students. I like to say that they are like a coefficient in front of the actual research knowledge and experiments, because we think, oh, knowledge and experiments translates into productivity and success. But there's this coefficient of things like project management and generating and vetting ideas and oral and written communication and time management that determines how effectively that information and knowledge and experiments are translated into productivity and results. And much like we never got trained for this job, our students are not really receiving structured opportunities most of the time in order to learn those skills. And they're so essential for them in their PhD and also, you know, of course, beyond. And so I decided a few years ago, maybe three or four years ago, to just put myself on the line to present most weeks at my own group meeting. And initially I said, oh, it'll be one slide, five minutes, something on my mind. As you've probably seen, I cannot do anything in five minutes. So now it's more 15 to 20 minutes. But it's also in, it's become an interactive workshop format where I will talk for 10 to 15 minutes about the topic. And then there will be a quote unquote, I call it your turn, which is, okay, everyone has some actionable thing that they take five or 10 minutes and write out and then talk with their neighbor about. But it's been really fun because it's been an opportunity for me to say things like, as, as faculty, we develop these in sort of intuitive skills or they seem in, intuitive, but intuition is really just having a heuristic that you've gotten so good at applying that you do it without thinking about it. So when you see a research idea or you're reading a paper and you have this idea pop in your head and maybe we could do this, Pretty quickly, you're able to intuitively decide, does this seem like a promising idea that just needs some work or no, that's not worth pursuing anymore? Well, where is that coming from? What, what's the actual heuristic that's behind that? So it's really fun to challenge myself to think, well, when I hear an idea or think of an idea, what are the questions that I'm actually going through in my head? I don't even realize I'm doing it, but what is the process I'm going through in my head? 
to decide if that's a worthwhile idea or not. And then can I put that into a set of slides and help other people to understand it and to learn it or adapt their own heuristic out of that? And it's been fun because, oh, I didn't realize that that's what was going through my head. But now that I've written it down, it makes sense. And now that we have that, it it gives everyone in the group, and I should bring this into my classes as well, where I teach proposal writing, we have a worksheet that literally has these six questions that we ask our ideas. And if you can get through answering all six of these questions and you are still excited about your idea, it's probably an idea that has some pretty good merit to it. So putting myself in the line to present that, it's been I think really good for the whole group. And then it's allowed me to share those resources externally as well. But it's, I think I learned the most by doing this. I feel like I come away having learned the most from putting together these presentations. And so now actually um, other people in the group often do the presentations as well. And once a month we have one that is uh, directly focused on DEI topics and learning and changing our own lab culture and policies. And those are always led by other lab members, or we all take turns on them. So it offers a chance for other people to take the lead and investigate, think about something, and then present it to everyone. Okay, I loved a lot of stuff in there. So one of our things in our intro is that we want to focus on communication, community, and curiosity. It's kind of the three C's that we try to foster in mentoring. So good job. Didn't even prep you, and you nailed all of them. (laughs) (laughs) So it's cool to hear that reaffirmation that, that that's kind of a universal thing. I wanted to follow up a little bit on the group meetings. So you call them your group meetings and your subgroup meetings. This is something that we've talked a lot about on this podcast. And I actually just had an aha moment yesterday. I've had some stressors in my lab and kind of realized that I had, we had let some of the group meetings slip away because we were too busy to find the time. And that was my fault for not being like, no, we got to find a time. So could you just kind of briefly tell us kind of what your schedule looks like and just kind of high level, what are some of the things that you think are important to include in those types of meetings besides what you just talked about, which is an awesome kind of reverse engineering of your thought process, which is cool. Oh yeah. Thanks. And actually, I will actually start that by adding something onto the last question, which is that it isn't so much even about what replicating exactly what somebody else is doing, but the process of thinking through what is most important and most helpful for my group right now and then tailoring whatever we're doing to that and so in fact the only thing that is constant about our group meeting and subgroup format is that they're always changing that the frequency of our meetings the format of them changes about once a year or once every other year and some of that is because we just get bored like if none of us wants to go to group meeting or if we don't miss it when it doesn't happen then it's gotten stale and we need to do something different to make it fun again. But also just that different seasons have different needs and that can depend on whether we have a lot of newer group members and senior people have just left or whether people are pretty senior and we haven't had as many new members join. When I was about to go up for tenure in chemistry, you do this tenure tour where you're traveling a ton. So during that time, it was, I can only have two group meetings a month but I want to touch base with everyone. And our group was not huge then. So it was just these really short, quick hitting talks. Right now we're in a phase of essentially practicing job talks. So group meetings are more formal. And then a few years ago, the group said, we'd like to have subgroups. And so our structure for that even has changed. Right now it's about once, if they meet every week, but I only come once a month and people have slides and it's just really quick hitting what's working what's not what do we need to all get together and troubleshoot and then something else we added a few years ago is having monthly one-on-ones that i meet actually have a whole bunch of those today kind of before and after we record this podcast that i meet for 30 minutes with each person every month and we have a report format that everyone keeps going from month to month it's very much like a it's like an idp but then It's a combined individualized development plan with a project management plan. And everyone writes those and puts them in our shared folder by the night before so I can review them in the morning before the meeting, come in prepared. And everyone tells me their agenda for the meeting. And it's basically about anything that's not research details. 
Like we're not going to look at a gel. We're not going to look at PCR and MMR. That's all in subgroups. This is about where do you want to go in your career? How, how can we help you get there? So all sorts of things from career advice to thinking about the strategy of which project should I be prioritizing to should I be taking this opportunity or passing on it or going for this thing instead? And I love to talk to people a lot more often than that, but it ensures that as my schedule gets busier, we have it at least 30 minutes of one-on-one FaceTime every month and that at least once a month, we're keeping an eye on everyone's midterm to long-term personal and career goals. That's interesting. So you, you're actually providing them with a framework for basically the two components, the personal development plan and then their um, project management plan. And that's really the focus of those one-on-one meetings. That's really interesting. I actually think that's very cool because um, I, in our one-on-one meetings, it's a combination of your subgroup and your individual meetings. And I actually think it could be really great to maybe formalize more of the personal development plan part of it. So I'd love to get ideas about how to develop some framework that would help them think through that. Yeah, I, I love that. And again, it's something that has continually evolved in our lab and it's at a pretty good place right now, but two years from now, it'll probably even look different from how it is now. But the more, the, the one thing that's been constant in our evolution is putting more and more structure to things and then communicating that structure. Again, that our group policy manual has, what is the outline for this document? When is it due to be uploaded in the OneDrive folder? And then we provided some examples of them from other group members. And because it's all in a OneDrive, people can go back and, and look at examples from other people as well to figure out how to do theirs. So there's a lot of different ways that people approach it. All of them look a little bit different, but it definitely has that format of thinking through all your current projects, your time and effort distribution from the last month for the next month, your personal and professional goals for the next semester, the next year, the next few years, and your agenda for the meeting. What, what do you want, you know, what do they want to prioritize in that 30 minutes with me? So again, I heard structure and communication and effectively communicating expectations, right? Which, we can't expect them to succeed if we haven't showed them what the roadmap is for it. So I love that. And creativity that it can, we don't need, often people ask me, well, who told you you could do those things? Like, well, nobody told me I can't, right? We're, we're so creative and innovative in our research, but often we're afraid to do the same thing in our leadership because we're afraid we might mess up because the stakes are high. But I think, doing something just like in research if we never did an experiment because we we're afraid it would fail we would never get anywhere and similar in leadership doing something well-intentioned is better than doing nothing and so you just start doing something you pilot it commit to it for a semester get feedback on how it went ask the group what should be changed what should we keep what should we change and then we just keep changing it and evolving it over time and i, I think we can just keep you know, that's maybe the number one thing I've come to realize is that that's really what leads to good mentorship and leadership is trying something out, finding out how it's going, trying to tailor it, you know, listening to feedback from the people who are impacted from it, and then asking, how can we do better? What can we do better? And it's just so much fun, too, because then you, you're really working together as a team to craft what is our group all about? And how do we do things here in this lab? And that's, that's the whole fun of this job. Well, Jen, you know, you, you made this comment about basically being vulnerable in that you're going to go ahead and try something out and realize it's not going to be perfect the first time, right? And being willing to make changes based off of feedback. And I do feel like, especially when I first started in my role, like I'm already insecure in my understanding of how to mentor And it can be very difficult because you're insecure to be willing to show that vulnerability uh, to your students in particular, but also to your colleagues. And I actually think that's one of the things that over time you grow and you learn that there's value in that and showing them that you are willing 
to get feedback and make changes actually makes the whole process easier, not harder. And so I think that's a really great tip for people when they're thinking about their mentoring process. Be willing to be vulnerable with your students because a lot of times they can help you do a better job just by the feedback they provide. You're exactly right. And there's there's a real vulnerability to vulnerability when we start out. And I think too, you you nailed it exactly that we're afraid of, of that. And I think part of that fear too is that people might respect us less if we admit our mistakes or are open to feedback. But it's important to remember that actually the opposite is true, that when people give us feedback, they already know all of those things about us. They already think all those things. They just haven't told us. And the opportunity for us to listen and actually respond by making changes or explain why we're not going to change something can really only increase the amount of respect that people have for us. And that also, especially with students, they feel like they're so alone in their failures. And one of the super powerful things we can do is admit our failures. I have a pretty classic story about like how I just totally botched using pipe headers the first time in grad school and just all the little mistakes I've made along the way. And I think telling those stories and then saying, but then here's how I learned. And I made sure I didn't make that mistake in the future. I think it's so, so important. I think that's actually mentoring wise, one of the other incredibly impactful practices is for us to share our mistakes that we made, our failures within reasonable boundaries, sharing about some of our insecurities or struggles. When I told my group, yeah, I was talking about motivation and professional development talk. And I said, yeah, I sometimes struggle with motivation and I'm a pretty high energy person. And someone in the group looked at me and they're like, really? I was like, I know, right? And then they were like, oh wait, this means you're human. Yes, (laughs) very much so. But everyone just thought, I bound out of bed every day and always can't wait to tackle whatever awaits. And for me to share that really normalized the fact that similarly, some days they don't feel like coming into lab and that's part of being human. The important part is how we manage that and make decisions around that and try and be our best. How do you try to help foster resiliency in your graduate students? I feel like we can try to interview, we can try to find it during some of those processes, but there's lots of things that we can do as mentors to try to encourage these powers of resiliency. What do you got for us? (laughs) Oh, that's a great question. Mostly I will default to the people who research this. I dabble in reading some of the research. When something bad happens, what makes the difference between someone kind of just crumbling and never recovering versus coming out of that so much stronger than they ever were? And one of the models, um, and this goes back to Viktor Frankl's work and and many others since then as well, but he's really one of the foundational people in this, is there's three things. One is you can see personal growth from the struggle. You can see the opportunity to help others through what you've been through or to make an impact beyond yourself through your struggle and you are surrounded with other people who can support you through that. You're not going through it alone. And so as mentors, we can, well, A, there's a lot of resiliency has a good and bad side in how we talk about it, that I always say, yes, there should be struggles in grad school, but they should be unavoidable struggles, not avoidable struggles. A lot of people create toxic environments and then say, but look, build resilience. It's like, no, no, grad school should be hard because science is hard not because you're in an unsupportive or hostile environment. But when experiments aren't working and science is being hard or something is happening that someone can't control, I think helping them to see maybe personal growth or impact on others, but at the very least, just saying, hey, I am here with you in this. I am going to, whether you're having a good day or bad day, I have no idea what's going to happen as the outcome of this but I'm going to be there to walk through it with you. And I'm going to help you keep making decisions as you go along. And that's something that's fairly well supported in literature. It's also definitely what I've benefited from with my mentors, that lots of really bad things have happened along the way in my career. But at every, I had a very rocky tenure case. I had this whole thing that happened with a postdoc offer that was taken away. Just lots and lots of bad things. Lost my dad, lost my best friend. And through it all, it was, 
mentors who stood by and said, this is a really hard thing, but I'm going to walk with you through it. And I'm here for you. And again, the outcome is not certain, but I can help you think through what you want to do. And I will be here, whatever decision you make, I will be here supporting you along the way. I think that's probably the highest impact thing we can do. So it sounds like someone being a coach, so it's being there for them. You don't know the answer, just like they don't know the answer, but you're there to help them talk through it. But also, I think helping them realize that sometimes things fail and it's not their fault. And I feel like they want to blame themselves oftentimes. It's really interesting how many times, especially early on in graduate students' careers, it seems like if they don't know it, they blame themselves for not knowing it. When the whole point is you're learning, it's okay. That's the goal here. You're learning. And I feel like that just that reassurance that that's not expected for them to miraculously know all this information. Otherwise, why in the world are they in grad school? I I feel like that reassurance sometimes is is a big help for helping them get over those stumbling blocks. But resiliency is something that is really important in graduate school and their future careers. And I also feel like it's something that we don't probably concentrate enough on. Absolutely. Yes, this is how, I won't talk about it, but we started our whole education research collaborative out of that. Basically the idea that as scientists, we know that failure is unavoidable and we know that having the perseverance and resilience to move through failure and learn from it and grow is critical to success. But when are we teaching students this? And especially in the undergraduate curriculum, when are they learning this? It's certainly not when they're converting moles into grams and grams into moles in general chemistry, right? So we need to be more mindful of how we teach this to undergraduate students, especially ones who will go into jobs and haven't had a lot of opportunities to do research. Yeah, that's great. So thinking about resiliency, uh, let's talk about faculty for a minute. And what do you think the biggest challenge for faculty is when it comes to graduate student mentoring? Oh, what I touched on earlier that we know it's important. We largely feel unprepared for it. So it can feel a little bit scary. I remember, I will admit the first group meeting that our lab ever had was this very awkward sort of thing where it's like, all right, we are allowed now. Welcome, everyone. I'm supposed to mentor you. It wasn't quite that bad. Here's how we will do group meeting. In order to provide a model for that, I'm going to present the first group meeting on my research. And then I got up and started drawing on the board reactions I had been running in lab back when I worked in lab. And it was, it was super awkward. But I think leaning into that awkwardness is better than running away from it. I think the other just very real challenge is time. That as faculty, I've seen, it's a little hard to engage because I've moved through my career over the last 10, 11 years. I know things get busier as you have more and more, but I've also seen people who were at kind of you know more senior career stages throughout all that have also said, it has gotten so much busier that as funding rates are lower, we have to submit more applications. That means we have to submit more papers. That means there's also a lot more reviewing that comes our way to do as service. The compliance part of it in research has gotten really big. Um, all of the COI and the international compliance and export controls, all of those things. And if you have IRB, there's just so many more things pressing in on our time than there were 10 years ago. And that's a very real struggle, and especially for early career faculty who also then often have school-aged children at home or senior faculty who often have elder care responsibilities. There's just a lot. And so even when people really want to do a great job mentoring, we, I think probably universally, we all feel like we can't put the time into it that we wish we could. I know I feel that way. So I just have to say the fact that you did a lab meeting or a group meeting, like within your first year of faculty feels like very impressive to me because I think I was probably four or five years into my faculty position before I was like, you know what, I'm busy and I need to have some structure here to make sure that because my lab got really big, really fast for an animal science lab. I had 
five, six students. And it was like, okay, who's on first? What's on second? Communication was a challenge. Keeping up with individual deadlines. If they weren't graduating that semester, they weren't front of mind enough. And I didn't come from a lab that had group meetings, right? We were small enough where he would just pop in whenever. And so it was this whole different mentality. So I think new faculty look at me sometimes like, what do you mean I should have grad meetings, like group meetings? Like I'm already on committees and I'm teaching and I have to do all these other things. And it's like, no, if you don't do anything else, have a meeting and have it scheduled, it will pay dividends. That's so powerful that you're bringing that norm to early career faculty or field. That's so fantastic. I think we need more and more of that. So huge congrats and kudos to you for doing that. that that's so much impact on everyone in those labs to, to be encouraging that practice. Oh, well, I appreciate that. So that's going to lead perfectly into one of the questions I really wanted to make sure we got to address today. So I think I understand from your CV and stuff that you have some roles in faculty development, um, some leadership there in your department. So I don't know if you could briefly tell us what that looks like. And then specifically, I'm very passionate about faculty development too. I hate administration with a hardcore passion, um, but that's the only reason I would possibly ever be interested in administration is I really feel like that's a huge multiplier effect to positively affect other faculty, especially new faculty. What tips can you give us to potentially help set those new faculty on a path of success to understand how important graduate student mentoring is, that there is value to it from the university and you know how much impact it can have on their own programs? Yeah, thank you for that question. I will say that, so the role that I have in my department is exactly our faculty recruiting development. It's a new role that we created about less, a little less than two years ago. So a lot of the work that, that I've been doing and, and our whole committee has been doing has been around providing processes for things like how we do faculty searches and increasing the transparency of communication for early career faculty. And so we haven't gotten to turn as much as we might want quite yet to the faculty development part, though we have done some. So we created a faculty professional development plan that is really just a, this is our commitment to you as a faculty member from our department to you that we are going to provide you with this advice. And it's things like you have a scientific advisor who will provide to you examples of their grants, who will review your grants before they get submitted, who will review your manuscripts before they get submitted, will get you invited to conferences. You can, the department will commit funds for you to have a professional coach, which was a thing that I was really big on. And we will pay for you to attend these workshops within that the university offers on mentoring and DEI and crucial conversations. And then my role, I'm the concierge that you can come to me and I will help you coordinate your peer evaluations of teaching. Um, I can help you make decisions about when you might want to take these classes or what resources you might want to avail yourself of within the university. And so we've gotten to do some of that, which has been really, really fun. And I think hopefully helpful, um, but a lot of it has been trying to create more uniform processes. So right now we're in the middle of thinking about a uniform process for our peer evaluation of teaching that would be then based on best practices. But then outwardly beyond my role in the department, I'm super passionate about faculty development because I think that we get a powerful lever for changing academic culture is by helping us as faculty to be better mentors and leaders. And I think most of us really care deeply about this and really want to do this well, but we weren't trained for it. And we feel super busy and overwhelmed and it feels impossible to go find the resources or learn or implement these best practices. And so my goal there, I'm writing a book right now that will hopefully be done next year and released in 2023, but it's really aimed at, okay, you only have a half an hour, but here's something you can do. Here's a little thing you can do. Just lots of really practical tips to think about leadership and self-leadership and mentoring and how to create the environment that you want in your group. Because I think the more, and I benefit so much from resources that people share with me, I think the more we share resources with each other, it's just a win-win that we can find ways to help each other do this better. 
Okay, Mary knows that I'm about to nerd out about writing. <laughs> I saw her face. She's like, oh, she wrote a book too. So I published a novel, not a nonfiction, but fiction novel in April. So I've been doing lots of writing. And for better or worse, my grad group has come with me on the writing journey because I've been listening to all these writing podcasts. And so one of the coolest things we've done this year that has been so effectual has been we now have writing sprints. Starting in January, the whole group met on Zoom and we did feedback. So we changed throughout the year, like whether it was twice a week for an hour or once a week for an hour and a half. They came with the plan. We did an opening go round. I'm going to write my materials and methods for this paper or whatever, right? So it was all science writing. And then we would all write with our cameras on for you know accountability. And then we'd come back at the end and say what we did and whatever. And I think we've published 12 papers so far from the lab this year, which is, you know, probably twice what we would have on an annual basis. And uh, that's just been such a cool thing to take from that. So yours is obviously nonfiction. Can you tell us a little bit about like, has that, as you're thinking about being an author, has that affected how you're building writers in your lab group? Oh, yeah. I love your story. Oh my gosh. As I was listening to that, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, we need to do something like this. This this is something that needs to happen. So thank you for sharing. See, we share practices with each other and then we get all these ideas and it takes very little time and then we all get better. I've definitely shared, it's a different type of writing, but I also write, my book is somewhat of an extension of the monthly column that I write. And my group had wanted to be involved in that. So I put out a call for, hey, if you want to help me edit this every month, I would love to have this read from your perspective as as graduate students or postdocs. And just make sure I don't say something that, you know, having been a faculty member for 11 years, I'm so incredibly out of touch that I, without intending to, come across in a way that I don't want to. And so there are five people who read that every month and give me feedback. And I've gotten to co-author a lot of those with grad students in the group. And that's always been fun. But I haven't shared as much of my own writing journey with my book. And I should do more of that. I was talking to one student or one-on-one about it this morning. But I should do more of that as a group. So thank you for inspiring me to do that. One thing we do, I will say one thing we do talk about, our whole structure for writing is all writing by example. It's take an example of a paper or a grant or whatever that you like, reverse outline it, you know, go through every paragraph and say, why is this paragraph here? Why is each sentence here? What's the purpose of each sentence? And then you create this template and then you can lay your science on top of it. It's like building a house. You don't like redesign the whole architectural plan, find one you like, Strip off the outside siding and all of that down to the scaffolding and then put up all of your, you know, siding and decorations that you want on it. And you're going to have something that works pretty well by the time you do that. And the idea that no matter what you're doing, you can have that structure to it. So writing doesn't have to feel so scary and mysterious and, and magical. But I would love to hear about how you write a novel because I would be... I would be lost. I would have no idea how to write a novel. I think that's so cool. So I I was thinking about your comment about the building house and the scaffolding. And that's actually some of what we did in group meetings. Uh, I don't know, maybe it was last year. We basically would take a section like a discussion and I would have students go and find discussions they really liked. And then we'd talk about why they liked them and what was good. And then we'd also do sometimes where I would have four or five, you know, introductions and they would read them and then they would say, they would rank them. And then we'd talk about why they ranked them the way they did with the idea of just getting them to think about what was really great about what they did and what did you not like so that they could develop those thought processes about how they might write. And I think the more we think about it, from the standpoint of a skill versus a, this is what I have to do to get my degree, I think uh, the better off we're going to be. So I think that's a really great point. We have just a very short amount of time left. And I have one burning question, which is about your lab awards. So I follow you on Twitter and I thought it was just an interesting idea that you have this ability to foster that community within your group and that um, my understanding is that you actually get 
nominations and feedback from the group. And I was really curious at how that worked, um, what things you've done that maybe you had to tweak to figure out how to make it uh, really a, a fully um, positive experience for all the members, because I really like the idea, but I'm afraid of it a little bit that it might backfire on me. So I'm kind of intrigued to see if you can give me any advice. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. That it, if there isn't trust in teamwork and community, it can just be jealousy instead of community. And our feedback, we give and receive feedback with each other similarly. And I was telling a friend about it once and they got this horrified look, what's wrong? They said, if I did that with my group, no one would speak to each other for two weeks. And I remember like, oh yeah, we have over time by doing that, we have built the trust that is really, trust is the foundation for all of it. Patrick Lencioni uh, in his book talks about this, trust is the foundation. And I think the other thing that's important is that it was the group's idea. So that is when, when the group generates ideas that, and it's not coming from me, then the buy-in is automatic. And so this is something that the group had the idea for a few years back. And they said, we think that this would be really positive for morale to have group awards. And I said, cool, tell me what you think we should do. And we decided there's two award categories. For a brief time, we had a third one. We were doing some science communication stuff with a family dinner winner. But now we have above and beyond and out of this world. One of those is peer nominated and one of them comes from me. And I think a few of the keys are that, well, one is peer nominated. Two, it's based on effort and growth and perseverance and service, not results. So it's based on process. Who went above and beyond by really mentoring all of the rotation students more than anyone? Or who was facing a really hard challenge with their project? And even though they haven't solved it yet, they just keep running at it and making really good decisions. Who killed a project and was willing to walk away and say, this just isn't going to work. I need to cut loose the last six months of work and do something different. It's for those sorts of things, not, oh, who had the most papers. So I think that also makes a big difference. And it's something that over time, we do it with enough frequency and there's enough awards that over time, it basically rotates through everyone. So everyone knows they'll get their moment in the, the sun. But it's just so much fun. I, I take all of the nominations from people and then I write up my own little nomination statements for the ones I give. And then I bring all the awards and I read them out. I go, oh, this above and beyond is to someone who, and I read the nominations like this person, blah, 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 and this person, this. And then at the end I say it's, but at some point, usually in the nomination statement, people figure out who it is. And so there's kind of that fun moment. Everyone's listening and trying to figure out who is it, who is it, who is it? And then something gives it away and, you know, oh, their paper got rejected by three journals, but they just kept trying or they killed their project or they organized this amazing thing for our lab. And then everyone kind of smiles and you get to the end and you read the name and you give it out and everyone claps. And it, it's become a really great team building thing for us. And in fact, during COVID, I forgot to do it one semester and everyone said, aren't we having, aren't we having the awards? I was like, oh yeah, yeah, life was busy. We get young kids like, sorry about that. Yes, I will. That's super important. I will get on it. So I, I think it's important enough to us that we want to keep doing it. Yeah, that's really cool. What I heard was that it's really important for it to be centered on effort and contribution to the group rather than all the things that it's actually teaching teamwork and it's teaching perseverance. And so that's actually really cool. I think that's a really great idea. Sounds like that's a good resiliency tool as well, working through a problem and getting reward for building that kind of attitude. Okay, we're at the end of our time together, Jen. So what did we miss? Is there anything that you're really passionate about on this topic that you wanted to get a chance to tell our listeners? You know, I will build off of the last thing that we just talked about, because I know you're really interested as well in how we reward good mentoring from faculty. And there's two thoughts I have about the reward system within our lab, the award system. One is that as faculty, we often, it's easy to get frustrated if you're trying to create change in the whole academic system. You know, you are trying to do this through podcasts. It's a powerful way, but that change is slow. But if there's change we want to see as faculty, realizing we have the power and authority to create that within our group, that we have tremendous autonomy 
And whatever we want that culture to be, we can create that. We can work together with our group members to say, what do we want that to be? And how do we make that happen? And I think it took me a while to realize how much freedom we do have and to really embrace that. And also that then this is what we need to do more of at the, the faculty and up level that we show we value with what we reward. And if we want to show we value mentoring, there, then that needs to be baked into the reward system that more awards that are given, not just the mentoring awards, that's great to have mentoring awards, but that the research awards should include not only the papers or whatever, the research itself, but also the mentoring. That if as a whole scientific community, this is something that we really, really value, then we need to make that part of the reward system. And so I would love to see universities or uh, professional societies or, or whoever that is that's giving away research awards, that research is done by students and postdocs to have the quality of mentoring that those individuals were receiving or even perseverance and resilience and failure and things like that be considered in those awards if that's what we value. Because otherwise we do. We say we just value these shiny papers and that's really it. That's the message that too often gets sent especially to the next generation of scientists. And I think that there's power to have a transformative impact on our culture when we change the things that we are really visibly rewarding. So how could we reward our fellow faculty members who we see are being good mentors? I'm a big fan of the peer mentoring thing too. How can I take somebody under my wing and be like, come along to our grad meeting and see what we do. And then also learn maybe what that person did as a grad student that we could adapt to our labs. Okay, this has been amazing. Jen, how can folks reach out to you to learn more about your program or to find you on social media platforms? You can find our group at heemsterlab.com. You can find the group on Twitter at, at heemsterlab. I will say that is by far the more interesting of the two Twitter accounts associated with our lab. Mine is the less interesting one, and that is at Jen Heemstra. But if you're only going to go to one, go check out the group's Twitter and check out our website to learn more. And then we're going to be on the lookout for a book. Yes, in 2023, hopefully. And maybe we'll have you on again in 2023 as a part of your podcast tour for your book. I would love that. This was so much fun. Thank you for having me. Thank you, honestly, so much for your time. This has been great, Jen. And it's really cool to see how mentoring goes across disciplines. Well, we hope that you learned as much as we did from this interview with Jen. We really enjoyed this conversation and she just has such passion for uh, helping graduate student mentors improve and improving the process for graduate students. As a reminder, we can be found on Twitter at MentorsGrad and uh, hopefully you can follow us there, uh, leave a comment. Um, we'd love to get some feedback on the podcast if there's certain topics that everybody is enjoying or things that they'd like to hear more about. Or if you have suggestions for guests, let us know that too. So with that, we'll see you next time.